This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here. The name is Paul Revere. And here's a guy that says if the web is clear. Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. With this week being Breeders' Cup week, it seems appropriate to share some history. A history it is important to say that could not have been told without the assistance of Bill Heller, longtime New York journalist, author, and racing commentator. As you will soon hear, Bill actually, quite by accident, became a central player in the drama we are about to relate. So he's both contributor and actor. Bill, thank you very much for your assistance. For those of us who have attained a certain age in life, and by certain I mean old, particularly for those of us representing the male in the species, If we think hard enough, we can almost certainly remember some undoubtedly alcohol or other mind-altering substance-fueled brilliant idea that fortunately never came to fruition. Because, upon further examination, many of those quote-unquote brilliant ideas were actually more than a little dim. I always like to say when someone says to themselves, why hasn't anyone else thought of this? They are merely placing the emphasis on the wrong syllables. They should be asking instead, why hasn't anyone else thought of this? I don't know if the story we are about to tell has its roots in an alcohol or otherwise inspired evening, but it certainly has all the hallmarks of it. And indeed, two of the trio of conspirators were remembered by college classmates as life-of-the-party types. But as I said, we can all remember some brilliant ideas we had that were actually nothing of the kind. And some of us, not naming any names, acted on them as well. Fortunately for us, our mishaps were not as public as the one I am about to relate. With that in mind... It's important to note that from the information I can gather and attest to, I can verify that two of the three individuals involved in this story have rebounded from their very public mishaps and have gone on to lead productive, professional lives. I am simply unable to find any information related to the third member of this triumvirate. I did reach out for comment to the lead actor in this drama, and for very understandable reasons, he does not wish to comment any more on this chapter in his life. It's a public domain story, and its drama and denouement are well worth telling, But it's also well worth remembering that any of us can make a mistake. It's what we do to recover from it that matters. So let's go on to the story. Chris Harn, Derek Davis, and Glenda Silva were Tau Kappa Epsilon fraternity brothers at Drexel University in Philadelphia in the early 1990s. Chris in particular was well remembered by his fraternity brothers as very skilled in computer science, having majored in information systems at Drexel. By 2002, Chris had been working for five years at Autotote, one of three providers of on- and off-track paramutual wagering systems for horse and dog racing tracks. During those years as a senior software engineer at Autotote, Chris thought he had uncovered a flaw in his company's systems that he felt could be exploited. After some initial experimentation with a separate scheme and some trial runs, Chris, Derek, and Glenn took a run at one of the biggest betting pools available in racing, the Breeders' Cup Pick 6. The 2002 Breeders' Cup was held at Arlington Park in Arlington Heights, Illinois, northwest of Chicago. Widely regarded as one of the most beautiful venues in horse racing, it was the home of the very first million-dollar race, the Arlington Million, whose inaugural running was won in dramatic style by the legendary John Henry, ridden by the equally legendary Bill Shoemaker. 
Every racing fan of any stripe looks forward to the Breeders' Cup Day for one reason above all others. Top horses running in full fields means prices. Horses who would be running in lesser yet nevertheless well-regarded stakes races on other days at other tracks might be running in fields as small as five or seven horses. In the Breeders' Cup, with some exceptions, you can be almost certain that the field size is going to be of the double-digit variety. It's simple math, but it can be boiled down to this. The bigger the day, the larger the fields. The better the horses, the more money it attracts. And because of the variety of opinions among bettors, the large amounts wagered are spread out among more contestants in each race. So while you might see 5-2 to two or even 8-5 to five on a horse in a 5-horse stake race at Santa Anita, that same horse in a full-field Breeders' Cup event might go off at 4 or 5-1, to one, an obviously far more attractive wagering proposition. The pick six, which requires the better to select the winner of six consecutive races, presents one of the most attractive prize pools in all of racing. Granted, picking six consecutive winners requires, for the most part, some skillful handicapping and a large bankroll, but the payoffs are well worth the effort. In the 2018 Breeders' Cup held at Churchill Downs, the six races in the sequence, all of which were won by logical contenders, resulted in a pick-six payoff of just over $3,700. In the 2003 Breeders' Cup held at Santa Anita, however, the six races in the sequence produced some far more unpredictable results, making a winning ticket that year worth nearly $2.7 million. Even those who selected five of the six winners were rewarded to the tune of almost $19,000. So it's a rich prize for which many aficionados of the sport want to reach. The first race in the pick six sequence in 2002 produced a highly unlikely upset. Right out of the gate, many tickets were reduced to chasing a five out of six payoff when heavily favored Rock of Gibraltar was beaten by the diminutive French horse Dome Driver who got the best of rail trips at odds of 26 to 1, splitting horses late while the Rock was forced to roll late from well back in the pack. Chris, Derek, and Glenn were not horse players of any kind, although they had been playing with the game for some time, so it's unlikely that they knew right out of the gate their scheme was already approaching a cliff. The scheme actually had its roots several years prior to the 2002 Breeders' Cup, and it all started with uncashed wagering tickets. As someone who holds on to every ticket for dear life, gripping winning ones until they scream, and even obsessively checking losing ones to make sure I didn't inadvertently include a winner on my ticket, I find it particularly hard to relate to the fact that there are physically issued tickets on which someone selected a winner that were, or are, lying out there somewhere with dollar values attached that are going uncashed. Of course, many tickets these days are tickets in name only being entered online with any winnings automatically credited. But every racetrack still has some portion of their handle every day from people on site at the track. And of course, you can go to the track, for instance, at Golden Gate Fields in San Francisco and bet on races at Churchill Downs in Louisville. So the chances of there being a significant amount of uncashed tickets increases quite a bit. Especially when you add in factor like scratches, which in certain multi-race wagers can result in your choice being replaced with the post-time favorite, disqualifications, general carelessness, or alcohol-induced forgetfulness. The rules vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in racing, but generally, uncashed tickets are honored for at least a year after their issuance. And obviously, the chance of a currently uncashed ticket being cashed diminished day by day from the date of original issuance. The total dollar value of those tickets is not insignificant. In 2015, the Maryland Racing Commission reported nearly $600,000 in uncashed tickets. The Lexington Herald Leader reported in 2017 that uncashed tickets at Keeneland Racecourse in the heart of the bluegrass were valued at $994,967. In New York in 2002, $7.5 million was handed over to the state after the year-long waiting period for uncashed tickets had expired. Chris Harn was not the first auto-toad employee to see the potential value in uncashed tickets. 
1999, an auto towed employee thought he saw an opportunity to make some money targeting Delaware Park's approximately $200,000 in uncashed tickets. His attempt could not have been more amateurish. The auto towed employee was apparently employed at Delaware Park. Behind the scenes, he reprinted a nearly year-old uncashed ticket valued at $300. Thanks to surveillance cameras and a suspicious manager, this individual was caught. Did Chris and his friends use this event as an object lesson in how not to pull off a successful scheme? We don't know. But Chris Harn, Derek Davis, and Glenda Silva went after these uncashed tickets in a much more sophisticated fashion. Chris worked out of Autotote's offices in Delaware. In that office, he had the ability to see into the uncashed ticket values at every racetrack that used Autotote's systems. Keep in mind that at the time, Autotote was processing over $9 billion in bets. That's right, Austin Powers, that's $9 billion for their United States racetrack customers. Chris actually traveled to different tracks in his role as senior programmer at Autotote. And Autotote employees were forbidden from wagering on races themselves. So it was at this point his old fraternity buddies came into the picture. Targeting tracks on the eastern seaboard in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, they pocketed nearly $100,000 after Chris identified and then printed out certain unclaimed tickets in Autotote's system. De Silva was living in New York at the time, and Davis was living in Baltimore, so it's safe to say that Interstate 95 was the lifeline of their $95,000 or so scheme. But Chris probably also knew that kept up too long, this type of scheme might reveal itself to those charged with oversight of the autotote system. Although using the terms oversight and autotote in the same sentence may be a bit oxymoronic. Lorne Wheel, chairman and CEO of autotote at the time of the Breeders' Cup conspiracy, actually praised the company's quote-unquote detection system, if one can refer to a quote-unquote detection system that kicks in only when others have pointed out its flaws. At Arlington Park, the second leg of the Breeders' Cup Pick 6 in 2002 was the Breeders' Cup Sprint, a six-furlong race for the fastest horses in the country. Favored Orientate, trained by the coach D. Wayne Lucas, turned in a first-class performance, getting up in the final strides over a 48-1 long-shot Thunderello. The three fraternity brothers may not have known it at the time, but their plot had just been provided a little bit of cover. Off-track betting, or OTB, came into being in New York in 1971. The subject had been discussed for years prior to that, when, at the end of the 1970 legislative session, New York City was projecting a $630 million budget shortfall, city-sponsored legislation was passed permitting the creation of the New York City Off-Track Betting Corporation, a so-called public benefit corporation to be run by a board of directors to be appointed by the mayor. There were some key elements of the arrangement, which eventually came to encompass not only the city, but multiple regional public benefit corporations. First, the takeout that any wagering entity imposes on monies bet into the systems were, in the case of the OTBs, retained by each OTB entity with only a nominal amount shared with the New York racetracks which were providing the product on which the wagers were being placed. Second, shockingly, these quote-unquote public benefit corporations became well-known feather betting operations. Patronage abounded. In 2018, for instance, Suffolk County OTB, in bankruptcy since 2011, awarded $500,000 plus in raises to 44 non-union employees. Those monies included 30% pay increases for their top two executives. As far back as 1984, the president of New York City Off-Track Betting was quoted as saying, the use of OTB as a political dumping ground persists to this day, and that, quote, virtually all hiring comes from political referrals. So it should come as a surprise to nobody that when the three friends were looking for another weak link to exploit, they turned to an OTB, quote-unquote, public benefit corporation, which was perhaps more interested in who they employed rather than what safeguards they deployed. Catskill OTB, you can probably guess the region in which they operated, 
was run then, as it is now, by a gentleman named Don Groth. What Chris knew about Catskill's OTB operation was something that Don Groth should have known. And that was that Catskill OTB had enough holes in their wagering processing system that with a little luck, or a little chicanery, could be exploited with no one the wiser. In leg three of the pick six sequence that year, Starreen, trained by the late great Bobby Frankel, prevailed on the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare turf as the seventh betting choice in a 12-horse field. If any of the participants in this plot had some inkling of probabilities and wagering strategies in horse racing, they might have become alarmed when they saw that the pick three ending in the Philly and Mare turf, which also comprised the first three legs of the pick six, paid off at odds of 2,300 to one. But ignorance is bliss. Short-lived bliss, as it were. Perhaps it was an overly trusting relationship with their autotote vendor for wagering services, or perhaps it was a result of a patronage-padded payroll lacking systems and security expertise, or perhaps even some third factor unknown to us. But the flaws in the larger system of processing wagers in the United States and at Catskill OTB were significant, riper for the picking than a strawberry in June. Due to limits on the amount of data that could be passed through the system at that time, the practice regarding off-track wagers and multi-race bets was that only tickets that were still alive after a certain point in the sequence would be transmitted to the host track. While the dollar value of all wagers in the multi-race sequences was transmitted initially, the system limitations meant that in the case of the pick four, Tickets that were still alive were transmitted only after the second leg of the sequence was completed. In the case of the pick six, live tickets were transmitted only after the completion of the fourth leg of the pick six. Given the typical half-hour delay between races, this was more than enough time for someone with access to the system to go in and alter bets before they were transmitted to the host tracks. That flaw was system-wide. At Catskill OTB, additional flaws existed. Derek Davis and Glenn DeSilva were both able to open accounts at Catskill OTB with applications they downloaded from the internet. Other OTB powers required someone to be physically present to open an account. Catskill OTB did not maintain a transaction history file for wagers placed via telephone touchpad, meaning no one could go back and audit the original wager selections. On the day when all their planning was to come to fruition with the score of a lifetime, Chris Harn was able to remotely eject the backup recording tape of all telephone wagers prior to the pick six wagers being placed. The fourth race in the Breeders' Cup Pick 6 sequence was the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, a premier showcase for the top two-year-old male horses in the country, perhaps providing a peek at a future Kentucky Derby contender. The race that year was won by, are you ready for this, a Bob Baffert-trained, Mike Smith-ridden horse named Vindication. Sound familiar? Yeah, those two are still up to the same tricks today. Vindication was the second choice in the field that day, but the real tricks were just about to begin. As the old saying goes, this was not Chris, Derek, or Glenn's first rodeo. As mentioned previously, Derek and Glenn had both opened accounts earlier remotely at Catskill OTB. They conducted their first dry run on October 3rd. Glenn had set up his account that day, and call it beginner's luck, he hit a pick four at Balmoral Park in Chicago worth $1,757. His remarkably fortunate streak continued two days later when he took down a $107,000 pick six at Belmont Park. Three days in, he was up well over $100,000. That's solid handicapping, or solid planning, anyway. Their methodology was more than somewhat crude and would prove to be their undoing. In the cases of both the pick four and the pick six, the last two races in the sequence were designated as all selections on Glenn's tickets, meaning they were covered with every horse and both of the last two legs. In the initial two legs of the pick four and the initial four legs of the pick six, Glenn merely selected a single horse. Which horse it was really didn't matter. Both of these cases, Chris had been able to identify Glenn's tickets in the Catskill OTB system before they were transmitted to those tracks, 
and change the numbers of those single selections to the actual winner. The final flaw in the Catskill OTB setup was that because it was a low traffic facility, it would not take Chris Long to get into that system, find the placeholder ticket that had been placed earlier, and change them. So what was transmitted to the host tracks after Chris got in there were tickets for he and his partners that were live into the last two legs, both of which were covered with all selections. Their dry runs had worked. Now they were ready to go after the biggest prize of all. They had successfully navigated their way through one scheme. Rightly fearing detection if they got too greedy with that one, they did their homework, practiced the plays in the playbook they had drawn up, and had scored on two successive occasions. What could possibly go wrong? The fifth race in the pick-six sequence was the prestigious Breeders' Cup Turf, a race that annually attracts the top turf distance horses from the United States and Europe. Classy, Irish-bred high chaparral in the masterful hands of trainer Aidan O'Brien and coming out of a third-place finish in France's prestigious Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, took down the winner's share of the $2 million purse, which is a lot of money anywhere. But not as much money as Chris, Derek, and Glenn were quite unfortunately about to come into for a brief period. Their lack of familiarity with wagering strategies and their assumption that their tickets would be individual trees in a forest of winning tickets led them to make a couple of very bad mistakes. They were going to win anyway. That was a foregone conclusion. Had they, for instance, selected two or even three horses in each of their first four legs, the fact that they selected all in the last two legs would have looked much less suspicious. As I said, they were going to win anyway. So what did the dollar value of the initial outlay mean anyway? Nothing, really. Secondly, and this was the more critical, more egregious error, the pick six is played with a minimum wagering unit of $2. Because of the expense of selecting multiple horses across six races, nobody, and I mean nobody, would ever make a unit wager in the pick six of more than $2. One might make out multiple pick six tickets, playing the top choices on one ticket and then on a separate ticket, singling an obvious contender or two, so as to perhaps allow one to add some longer price contenders in other races, but one would never, ever play the exact same ticket six times, which is what Derek Davis did. On the day of the Breeders' Cup, Davis accessed his Catskill OTB account for the very first time and placed the agreed-upon wager in his account. Single selections in the first four races, with the last two races covered by selecting all. In this case, however, he punched in the ticket on his phone with a base wagering unit value of $12. With the eight wagering interests in the Breeders' Cup turf and the 12 wagering interests in the Breeders' Cup classic, along with the four single selections in the first four legs, the total cost of the ticket was $1,152. Chris also did something unusual that day. He showed up at work that Saturday, a Saturday he wasn't scheduled to work. Once the scheme began to unravel, and it began to unravel very quickly due to the mistakes they had already made, and also due to one final completely unforeseen event, this odd event stood out as well to investigators. As previously mentioned, he remotely ejected the backup recording tape of all telephone wagers placed in the system prior to Derek placing his wager. Once Derek's placeholder ticket was entered, Chris had employees at Catskill reinsert the tape. Then, once the fourth race in the sequence was completed and it was time for Autotoad to transmit the live tickets to the host track in Chicago, Chris got to work, altering the selections on Derek's ticket and the first four legs to the numbers of the winners. Once the alterations were made and the transmission was completed, Chris's work was done for the day. On to that final, completely unforeseen event. Phil Johnson was a beloved institution to everyone who knew him from his hometown of Chicago, from the New York racing community, and as an occasional guest on Harvey Pack's weekly racing broadcasts on cable television. He had a modest start in the game, acquiring his first horse, Songmaster, for $75 at an auction in his native Chicago. By the time of the 2002 Breeders' Cup, he was already ensconced in the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame having, among other triumphs, 
defeated the mighty Forgo in the 1977 Suburban Handicap with his horse, Quiet Little Table. We'll let Bill Heller tell you what kind of person Phil, or PG, Johnson was. Bill was a great trainer, but Phil, I'll tell you a great story. He was in the swamp, and every trainer, jockey, handicapper, everybody goes through the swamp. But he was going through a bad one that had started at Belmont, carried over to Saratoga. And he told me that people started trying to stay away from him when he was like walking through the crowd. He thought it was hysterical. Like he thought it was contagious. And he had, I mean, it was the worst meet, the worst meet he had ever started. And then finally he broke it in a big way. He won the uh, grade one sword dancer. Uh, but he said, it was amazing how people, you know, they think that it's contagious, <laughs> but he was, a, he was funny. And I got to know him his whole family, his wife, uh, Mary Kay was wonderful, and it was just class, and he never made excuses. If his horse lost her race, he said so. And he was nice enough. One of my first books was a handicapping book called Overlay Overlay, and he let me do a separate chapter about turf racing with his insights. And at the time, he barely knew me. And, you know, I got to be very, very, very close to him. But And he was a great trainer, great grass trainer, and uh, just Somebody, everybody loved him. When he won that race in his hometown of Chicago, it was so cool. You know, that this was his biggest win at the age of 73. Phil Johnson's biggest triumph was to come this day there in his hometown of Chicago. And it was to come against a stellar field. Legends of the sport sprinkled the entries for that year's Breeders' Cup Classic. War Emblem, owner of the Kentucky Derby and Preakness titles. Medallia d'Oro, who had won the Traverse Stakes at Saratoga that year. Harlan's Holiday, who had been the betting favorite in that year's Kentucky Derby came home, who had taken down the prestigious Pacific Classic in California that year. Macho Uno, winner of the 2000 Breeders' Cup Juvenile, and other familiar names like Milwaukee Brew, Perfect Drift, and New York-based Evening Attire. For many years in New York, Phil Johnson had trained alongside Alan Jerkins, widely known as the Giant Killer. Jerkins had sent out horses that upset legends of the sport with names like Secretariat, Reaver Ridge, Kelso, Buck Passer, and Cougar II. On this day, Phil Johnson proved to be a giant killer himself. His entry in the Breeders' Cup Classic was Volpone, ridden by Jose Santos. Sean Bridgmahan had been on Volpone for most of his starts in 2002, but on this day, Sean rode Volpone's New York rival, Evening Attire. Running primarily on turf and mostly in graded stakes competition, Volpone had started seven times that year, winning twice, running second three times, and third once. Not a bad record overall, and certainly not one that should have been overlooked, as he was, at odds of 43-1. to the pace was swift that day, and for most of the race, Volpone hugged the rail mid-pack or so, and around the turn began to advance toward the leaders on his own. As they were coming out of the turn, you can see on the race replay that Volpone was absolutely loaded, and Jose Santos then found a seam to send him through. Again, let's turn to Bill Heller to tell us what it was like as Volpone took the lead entering the stretch and began to pull away from this star-studded field. With Volpone, uh, my son and I were, were at Arlington Park at the Breeders' Cup that time. And I was there covering the sprint race for thoroughbred times. But we hung around for the classic because I, uh, I got very close with Phil Johnson, one of the nicest people in the world. He passed away way too soon. But he was from Chicago. He had never had a big race win. I mean, a huge race. And Balpony, it was interesting because he was a rare, one of those rare horses that can run on turf or dirt. And he, it was a 50-50 decision. And he decided to run him on dirt and you know, they're coming around the far turn, and this horse makes his move and opens up a six-length lead, and my son and I are watching. We had two to win on him at 43 to 1. <laughs> We're screaming, oh, my God, come on, Volpone. <laughs> and after the race was over, 
somebody across the room where we were watching the race said, how did you come up with that horse? And I said, well, you know what? There was another gelding from New York in the race, uh, what, evening attire, who they beat each other all the time, and he was like 10 to 1. So I don't know why Valponi was 40 yeah. to 1. Yeah, oh, it's one of those yeah, uh-huh. weird things that happens, right? <laughs> Horses coming yeah. out of the same race, and the odds are just crazy, crazily different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he, I mean, he didn't just win the the, the class. He went by almost seven Oh, he lengths. smashed it. Yeah, he smashed it. Yeah. And actually, it, it's kind of interesting, Bill. I was going back and I was looking at the, um, you know, the, the, the Valponi's career record and everything. He was actually in pretty good form. He was not, un- in retrospect, everything's in, 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 not unseemable in retrospect, right? But he was in pretty good form. He had had a bunch of good races leading into this. And so... Oh, yeah. He was a, t- he was a t- talented horse. And when he first came on the scene... Uh, Richard Migliori, uh, very good New York jockey, retired after winning like over 4,000 races. He rode him in a New York red, I think, allowance race, and he was so awesome that he convinced Phil Johnson to take a shot with him and put him in the Travers, and he wasn't ready for it. He just didn't have the seasoning for it. But then as he developed, uh, you know, he turned into, uh, you know, like, yeah, there's very few horses that win stakes on both surfaces, and he was one of them. So he had, he had a lot of talent. And he decided to run the race of his life, and it had to be so special for for PG uh, to win in his hometown. You know, it was just he couldn't get to the winner's circle because everybody was so happy for him and everything. It was really cool. After leaving work that day, having executed on his behind-the-scenes part of the plan, Chris went shopping that day and didn't actually check the balance in their account until that night. That's when he knew they were in trouble. He, Derek, and Glenn obviously had the only winning ticket on this improbable sequence of. Breeders' Cup winners. In fact, they had six winning tickets. We'll let Bill Heller tell the story from here. Yeah, so we were at, my son and I were out in Chicago, Breeders' Cup, we came back home to Albany, you know, and on Monday morning, I got a very strange call from the New York State Racing and Wagering Board, and I knew a lot of people over there, but usually I'm calling them for information. They asked me if I knew if John DeSilva, who was the handicapper for the New York Post, was related to a guy named Glenn DeSilva. Oh, wow. Well, I said, why do you need to know? And he goes, well, we can't tell you. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll find out. So I called up John DeSilva. He's not related. I called them back and told them. And uh, I asked what the hell's going on. And they said there was some concern about, you know, the pick six in the Breeders' Cup. And they told me a little bit that, uh, and I got the sense of i got to follow this up big time. And they happened to mention Catskill OTB. Now, New York City's got six OTB regions. The one in Catskill is one of the smallest. And it turned out that all six winning tickets were made through Catskill OTB, which is highly unusual. <laughs> and then yes. let alone that you're doing it on a phone account. Yep. And let alone that Derek Davis, who put in the bat under his name and his account, lived in Baltimore. So right off the bat, you know, That's a stench. Yeah. So yeah. what happened? Yeah. So what <laughs> happened was, you know, I write. I, I was writing for Thoroughbred Times uh, at the time, and covering New York, and they have a website. So on that Monday, I wanted to get a hold of this guy because I found out that you know the big six payoff hadn't been made, so there had to be something going on. So I called up Catskill OTP, and the head of Catskill OTP is a uh, unique person named Don Groth, very flamboyant, uh, very. Uh, you know, maverick, unusual, um, and he said he was very proud 
that the winning tickets have been made to Casco TV and that he had no idea why they're holding up the payment and that it's ridiculous and they should just pay the guy. And I said, well, look, I'd love to talk to the guy. Could you give me his phone number? Because he had a phone account. And he said, no. And then I said, well, could you call him and ask him to call me and see if he'll do that? They said, okay, I'll do that. So five minutes later, I got a call from Derek Davis in Baltimore. And at the time, he would only tell me his first name, Derek. And I said, oh, okay, because I said, I can't talk to you without a, at least a first name. And he explained to me that he had just moved apartments in Baltimore, so nobody had his phone number, and blah, blah, blah. And he wanted to know why uh, they were holding up the winning ticket. And I said, well, I don't know, but I'd love to talk to you about you know, how you configured your ticket. And he wasn't... So it turned out he singled a single, when you're bidding a multiple pick raise, like a pick three, pick four, you try and find if there's a race where you can use a single. So you wanted the most likely winner out of the races to be the, you know, that's the horse. And they singled a $40 horse, <laughs> right, which made right. no sense. In the first leg, so, I right? Mean, yeah. Might, yeah, yeah. If, if, if they had asked anybody, including myself, my son, or anybody about how you bet, uh, they wouldn't have done it that way. And then he tried explaining to me how they came up with that $40 horse. And I've been covering horse races my whole life. And there was something that just didn't sound right about it. Because, you know, it wasn't like, there was, there was nothing. I mean, I've been a handy, I still handicap for Saratoga for the Schenectady Daily Gazette. And there was no sense in what he was saying about singling a horse that paid $40. Because there was one horse in the sequence who was a big favorite, and they didn't single him. Well, Ruck, so Ruck of Gibraltar was in that race, by the way. And and he was okay. not singled, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, the, right so away. No, yeah. yeah. And then I, then I found out that it was the same ticket six times. Right, right. So it was a $12, you know, so they put in a $12, six times $2. So they made a twelve dollar bet with the exact same six tickets. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, I think, nobody does that, right? Exactly. I, I think. So, I think when that happened, when that came out, I think everyone who has played any kind of multi race wager knew this. This stinks, right? I mean, that and that had to have jumped out to you right away when you heard that. Yeah, but well, in between, and this is real interesting. I had talked to Bill Nader and uh, my dear friend Jim Gallagher. Uh, Bill Nader was director of racing. Jim Gallagher. Is a super guy. He was the uh, member of the racing wager board. He was also head of the Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association. And I found out that they had raised the first suspicion because they had heard this thing about Catsco OTB and they did a little digging and they found out how the ticket was constructed. And they actually called up Arlington Park and the Beers Cup and told them to not pay off the ticket. That's where it came from. Oh, wow. On that, So that happened Sunday morning. And meanwhile, so I'm talking to Derek Davis on Monday. He's trying to get information from me about what's going on with the payout, and I'm trying to get information from him. And <clears throat> I said, well, can I talk to you tomorrow? Let me see what I can find out. And he said, okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. So in the meantime, I called Thoroughbred Times because I want to write this story. Nobody else has got it. Sure. And yeah. they, you know, they said, you know, you know, you got to use his whole name. I said, I don't have his whole name, and we got to run the story anyway. So on the Internet that night, I did a story about identifying who he was by his first name, you know, and what I thought was going on and, um, and, and agreed to talk to him the next day. And so what happens, because by the next day, this is getting more and more suspicious every minute. So, but, and, and I talked to him the next day and, you know, he was irate that they hadn't paid off the ticket and everything. And, 
And um, so it turned out, though, that there was like a 24 to 40 hour period where I was the only person in the media that had contact with Derek Davis. So unbeknownst to me is I get a call from like a Los Angeles talk radio show in Los Angeles <laughs> to interview me about what I knew about the pick six scandal, which I thought was hysterical. And I didn't mind. Um, cause now I'm getting, I'm reaching out to my sources and this is looking worse and worse. And, and uh, uh, still the second day, nobody had Derek's number. So I was the only person talking to him. Oh my gosh. So I had people, I had other people, you know, in the business call me up and, and beg me for the phone number. And I had told Derek that, you know, if he gave me his number, which he did to call back Tuesday, I said, I would not give it out to anyone. And I, I, you know, if you're a journalist, you know, you take that very seriously. I would have gone to jail rather than get that out because, you know, he told me that in confidence. And so, you know, Tuesday into Tuesday night, you know, more and more details came out and you realized, uh, you know, that, that, that there was something very, very bad going on. And then by Wednesday, you know, everybody knew, but in the interim, I got a visit at my house from the New York State Police, which I thought was interesting. Uh, late Tuesday afternoon, they drive up and to my house and come in, and I say, can I help you? And he goes, we'd like to talk to you about the pick six. I said, okay. So we sit down, and he said, we've gone over uh, Derek Davis's phone records, and we see uh, several calls to Bill Heller. He goes, how long have you known him, and what's your relationship? I said, well, I've known him for about 26 hours. And my relationship is that he called me 26 hours ago, and uh, I didn't have a relationship with him. And then I started asking him questions about the investigation, and the police don't like that when you yeah, turn the table. Yeah, they did not. <laughs> he got very, he got, he got very annoyed with me, and you know said something about you know this isn't a joke or whatever. I said I'm trying to do my job just like you're doing. Well, they, they were there to job. finger you, I think, as a co-conspirator, probably. That was probably their initial thing, I would think, right? Is that what they, you think they were getting at? Uh, I have no idea, but, you know, if they're going to start getting on my case, I've been a bad handicapper my whole life and, you know, piss off a lot of people. And I've written books about slaughter and pissed off a lot of people about how bad Lasix is. So I'll tell them, just, you know what, get at the end of the line. And after 45 <laughs> years, it's a long line, buddy. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just doing my job. Right, right. That's all right. And I did it well. You know, yep. we had the only, you know, uh, direct access. And then, of course, later, uh, Chris and I and his lawyer decided to try and do a book out of it. And and uh, my dear friend, Bill Knack, who was a brilliant writer for Sports Illustrated and won seven Eclipse Awards, he liked it so much, he gave me his agent's number in New York. Sterling Lord was a big-time agent in my man. And we did a 40-page synopsis, and he couldn't get it sold, so it never got sold. But in the interim, Chris hadn't talked to anybody, and he took me through the entire weekend. I mean, oh, it was wow. great. It was wow. stuff that nobody he, that nobody else knew. And to this day, I doubt if anyone knows. But I will share you share with you some of it. Is, you know, first off, the Breeders' Cup was on a Saturday. He wasn't scheduled to work on Saturday. So he shows up Saturday. You know, just for the hell of it, which was not really clever thinking. And then the phone system at Autotote was so bad that he couldn't get the bed in. He couldn't get access to it using their phone system. So he had to go in the bathroom and use the cell phone. So this is how this thing, whole thing happened. He's sitting in his bathroom and he changes the bet. And then he's not really, none of them were really horse racing fans. You know, everybody else were going to watch the Breeders' Cup. because of, So he went out shopping with his mom and his little daughter. And they went to Kmart while the, you know, while this whole thing is being run, because he doesn't care. And he, they get back home at night and uh, he says, 
he smokes and his wife makes him go step outside when he smokes. So he steps outside and he takes a look at the account, expecting to see quite a bit of money, you know, like several hundred thousand. Yeah. You know, yeah. instead he sees whatever it was, $60 million, because oh. they had the only tickets. Oh, my God. And so right off the bat, he knew he was in trouble. When it all began to unravel, Chris, who married with a two-year-old daughter, arguably had the most to lose, was the first to realize that the game was up and thus agreed to cooperate with the government, whose chief prosecutor was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, a Mr. James Comey. As part of his plea agreement, which resulted in a one-year and one-day sentence in federal prison, Chris was required to confess to all criminal acts in which he was involved, including the uncashed ticket scheme of which the authorities had known nothing, even with Autotoad's so-called detection systems. Chris only admitted to it because as part of a plea bargain, you have to admit to all criminal activity, right? Otherwise, the bargain gets voided, yes. right? Okay. That's okay. exactly the truth in New York. That's the law that you have to... Yeah, so he did. And they, you know, from their, from their viewpoint, they hit the jackpot with him. You know, they not only solved the pick six, but they solved all these uncashed tickets. Well, one of the things they always talk about in these criminal conspiracies, right, and, and it was a criminal conspiracy, uh, is if, if you know, it, if, if you're going to roll, you want to be the first one to roll because that's the one who's going right. to get the best. And he did actually get the lightest sentence, I believe, right, out of the three? Yeah, he did it by flipping, and I, I got to know Chris very well. Um, we had talked about possibly doing a book, and I told you this in a prior conversation, but... Uh, and in, in in researching that, I got to know his lawyer very well, a lawyer from Long Island, which was he had his own interesting stuff. I mean, he was he he was he heard on the radio driving home about the Pick Six scandal, and then he gets a phone call from Chris Horan asking if he'll represent him. Oh my gosh! Completely wow. out of the blue. Wow! Um, and then you know, Chris had Chris was married, and he had a young daughter. Oh my! And I think some of it. I, I, some of it might have been, you know, the thought of, you know, should never have to worry about college or whatever. Um, but he, if he, if he didn't cop a plea, then he was probably going to lose his wife and daughter. And, uh, his family was, you know, he made the right decision for him and, uh, he, he did his time. And, uh, you know, I, I know that you know, he wishes he would never hear about it again, but and he's not, it's not like, you know, he's uh, came came across as an evil, you know, mal, you know, malicious, terrible person. You know, he took advantage of the uh, security risk, and then he did something. As I mentioned earlier, we did reach out to Chris for comment on this story. You know, I I did actually. I think I mentioned to you. I had I had reached out to Chris. You know, see if I could get him to uh, interview, right. and and he never responded. So I sent him a note after I talked to you, and I said, hey. Chris, just so you know, you know, we're going to go ahead and do this thing. I would like it if you would participate, but I can certainly understand why you might not want to, but we're not, we're not here to take shots at you or to make, you know, light of the whole situation. I said, in fact, I think that it seems as if from what I can gather from the internet, you've you know, kind of turned your life around. And what he, it was interesting when he said back to me, he said, I, he said, I appreciate your discretion. I understand the way you want to portray this thing. And like I think he said to you, I just don't want to talk about it anymore. And he, but he said also he still has some financial obligations related to this, which I didn't want to probe anymore, right? But I was like, oh, that's kind of uh, – is he still like – does he have to pay restitution to somebody or anything? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, man. Yes, he certainly did. Wow. And, um, you know, my feeling about Chris is he committed a crime, and there's nothing that should be taken lightly about it. But uh, he did his time in prison. He's paying back the money, 
And, you know, especially in light of his daughter, he doesn't want his daughter, you know, growing up thinking that he was Al Capone. Um, So he was, I got to know him pretty well. And and just my feeling was he's not, he wasn't like an evil person. Um, You know, he just thought that it was there for the taking. He wouldn't hurt anybody since the money goes. And with the uncashed tickets, I mean, you know, who are they hurting? Right, right. Really, right. just as, yeah. No, I'm sure it felt like a victimless crime, probably, right? Uh, you know, which is... Yeah, yeah, especially you're in college and you think you're invincible. Exactly. Racing, of course, had to put their own house in order as well. And in the long run, racing gained from it because it showed all the weaknesses of uh, the security that was set up to protect these bets. And it forced the, the racing industry to take a good, hard, long look to improve the way that they do this, and they did. Yeah, how, how quickly, it's an interesting point, too, because now you're talking about massive system changes that have to happen both at the tracks and with the tote providers, right. I guess, right? How quickly did the industry respond to make those changes? Because until you get that fixed, you have this gap, this hole, right? Right. Well, it was interesting. The people from Autotote, uh, I mean, they were complete morons about this. I mean, they made it sound like it was no, it was a, he was a minor worker for Autotote and everything, and the company's great and everything and all this other junk and uh it, they it, they have the responsibility as does you know OTB and as does any racing body that to make sure these bets are secure and obviously they did a very very poor job of it one important task of course was to now go back and identify the betters who actually should have been sharing in the Breeders Cup pick six payoffs for correctly legitimately selecting five or six winners Volponi, who put the finishing touches on this story that ended in incarceration, ironically enough, was named after a gentleman named Paul Volponi, an author who also, it so happened, once taught incarcerated teens on Rikers Island. Irony abounds. As I said at the very beginning, and I hope I stressed enough, we all make mistakes. Most of us are fortunate that the ones we've made have been private and more inconsequential than the ones that Chris, Derek, and Glenn made. The racing industry also, quite obviously, had made their share of mistakes over the years, once they moved to correct after the fixed six scheme had been exposed. But the mistake Chris, Derek, and Glenn made was a criminal act. They all served their time, however, and I can verify that Chris and Glenn have gone on to productive careers, and I can also verify in Chris's case, a rewarding family life. Among the many lessons that can be drawn from this notorious episode, that is the one that I want to stress the most. We're all capable of mistakes. Big ones, even. And those make for big stories. But the biggest, most important story of all is what you do after that, to make something of yourself again.